The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. The book of Acts, as we continue our series in the book of Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 37. And just to set the scene a little bit and get you up to speed on where we are since we took a break last week, where we are right now is in Jerusalem. And Paul has been called and led by the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem after being warned by his friends, by people who cared about him deeply, don't go, don't go there, they're not going to treat you well. But the gospel and the Holy Spirit propelled him to go into Jerusalem. And he's called ultimately to Rome, but not before one final attempt at speaking to the people he loves, speaking to his family members, speaking to his fellow Jewish brothers and fathers. It's a plea, it's a call out with the gospel. And that's where we pick up today. And as we see at right before this passage, his brothers and his fathers are not responding real well to this changed Paul. And they want him out of their sight. They want him dead. And so the mob of people are saying, away with him. And the Roman authorities are taking him. Taking him up the steps to their headquarters to interrogate him. And ask him, who is this and what is it that you're doing? So that's where we pick up today in Acts 21, starting in verse 37. This is God's Word. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, or commanding officer, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Ryan's hands had become his eyes. Ryan Knighton had been blind most of his adult life. And he tells a story on the radio show, This American Life, about his strange and almost comical experience as he attempted to understand a world without sight. He was traveling for his work and had arrived late one night at his hotel. As was standard practice, he wanted to call his wife to let her know that he'd arrived. So he began his hand-led search through the hotel room to find the phone. And he started with the nightstands on each side of the bed. No phone. He made his way to the right side of the bed, to the coffee table, feeling no phone, to the wall with the sofa and the end tables, no phone. Made his way around the bed, to the desk at the foot of the bed, feeling around with his hands, no phone, and finally turned to the other side of the room, on the other side of the bed, feeling the wall, working his way back until he felt the bed hit his leg and realized there's no phone in this room. He even checked the bathroom, thinking maybe this is a special fancy kind of hotel and the phone's in there. No phone. He gave up. There's no phone in here. And he went to sleep. Only to awake the next morning to guess what? <laughs> 
the sound of a phone ringing. And he made his way to the phone, answered it, and he heard his wife on the other end of the line saying, why didn't you call me last night? And explained to her, I couldn't find the phone. And as he hung up the phone after the conversation, he was confused. How had he missed the phone until he realized that in his circle around the room, as soon as he felt the bed once again at his leg, he stopped feeling the wall and missed the alcove that had another couch and another coffee table with the phone. He says about this experience, when you're blind, you just can't assume anything. And the problem is, when we as blind people get a picture in our mind and we get it wrong, we just live inside the mistake. We just live inside the mistake. How many of us can relate to living inside the mistake? Where we assumed one thing and sooner or later discovered that we were completely wrong about our assumption. I'm notorious for this when it comes to first impressions. I'm terrible at first impressions. You can ask my wife what my first impression of her was, and you will know I was dead wrong. I believe I understand the layout of somebody's life. I might miss a key detail, and then I live inside the mistake until they share more of their story or show a side of them that I didn't think was there, and I'm humbled by my picture being wrong or distorted. I was blinded by my assumption, and then my eyes were opened to see with more clarity the real deal. We just live inside the mistake. And most of us here have not experienced physical blindness, but many of us here can attest to living inside the mistake as a spiritually blind person. Today's passage contrasts two conditions of people. First, we see the spiritually blind people living inside their own mistaken understanding of who God is and who we are as human beings. And second, we see a former blind man who has been given new eyes to see the truth, not through a phone ringing him awake, but rather through a light shining and a voice speaking him awake. Two sets of people. Blind people living inside the mistake over and over and over again, and a formerly blind man given sight by being directly confronted with the glory of God displayed through the light of Jesus Christ, to such a degree that his life would never be the same again. Today, our plan is to identify two things using the familiar phrase that we sang a little earlier, was blind, but now I see. First, we are going to diagnose spiritual blindness and what it looks like to live inside the mistake. And second, we're going to promote Christ-sightedness, what it looks like to walk in the light. Because only Christ can open our blind eyes and ears through his word in order that we could walk in the light. So before we go any further, I would ask that you'd pray with me for his help to shine a light on this text this morning. Let's pray. Father, 
I once was blind. But now I see. I believed that I could earn my way to you by being a good boy. And you showed me. By opening my eyes through your word and through your people, you showed me the reality of my condition. And you showed me the reality of your son. Lord, I pray this morning that as we come to your word, that you would shine a light on us. That we might see you clearer. That we might hear from you louder this morning. Father, use your word to unstop our ears, to open our eyes. We pray that your Son and His glory would be on display this morning so that we might taste and see that He's good and walk anew in the light, no longer as blind people. Use your word. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to spend some time diagnosing spiritual blindness as we see it in this text. Some of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time might be saying, well, Chet, what's the point of that? Like, can we move on? Why go back to our spiritual understanding of knowing Christ like when we were blind? Isn't that, that's just a waste of time. Why live in the past? Well, I feel it necessary to remind us that we have among us in this very room blind men and women who are continuing to live inside the mistake. We cannot assume that by coming to church week after week or year after year, that that has the power to open our eyes. We can't believe that singing songs of worship or tithing our money or being in a small group unstops our ears. We can't think that if I don't swear, drink, or chew, or hang out with those who do, that I'm walking in the light as he is in the light. Remember who Paul's primary audience was in this story. It's the Jews. Were they regular attenders of weekly worship services? You bet. In fact, they probably also went on Wednesday nights. Or they were in Sunday school too. Did they have ancient worship choruses found in the Psalms regularly on their lips? Most certainly. In fact, one person from that tradition probably knows more Scripture than the entire room here combined. Did they keep themselves above reproach by avoiding seedy places and messy, unclean, godless people? Absolutely they did. In fact, they had prayers that said things like, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. We have to diagnose spiritual blindness for the sake of every blind soul in this room. We have to recognize spiritual blindness as well for the sake of those of us who may have a condition that I will call gospel macular degeneration. For those of us whose vision for the light of Christ and the mission of the gospel is starting to fade. And we're starting to slip into our old, blind, mistaken ways. We need to recognize our need for God's grace to bring light to the dimming places of our hearts and our minds. 
So what are the primary signs that we find in this passage which helps us to understand and diagnose spiritual blindness or even gospel macular degeneration? I believe in this passage we see three main diagnostic criteria which are evident in the spiritual blindness of everyone in this passage. And they're kind of quirky words that I came up with, so give me some grace. There are three. Selective hearing, retinal rightness, which I'll explain, and neighbor nearsightedness. All right. So the first sign of spiritual blindness or gospel macular degeneration we see is selective hearing. Any of us who are married or have young children or have been children ourselves, can attest to the phenomenon of selective hearing. It's hearing what you want to hear and tuning out what you consider to be noise. Wives, can I get an amen? My kids' ears will become suddenly alert when I mention Legos, roller coasters, or swimming pools. In fact, last night as I was reading this out loud, Colson was walking by and he was like, I'm sorry, Dad, what did you say? Like, right when I was saying this, did you say Legos? My kids' ears, though, will suddenly be stopped up when I mention cleaning, bedtime, or homework. Where do we see selective hearing in this passage? Well, Paul, at the beginning of the passage, starts a conversation with the commanding officer in the commander's own language. He's shocked that Paul speaks Greek. Why? Because of selective hearing. What the commander is concerned about is keeping the peace. And what he mistakenly assumes about Paul is that he's a Hebrew leader of a terrorist party who needs to be taken out in order to maintain order. He hears Paul speak Greek and not Hebrew, and, and, and he'll listen now. And the exact same thing happens among the Jewish people when they hear Paul speak in the Hebrew or the Aramaic dialect. Verse 2 of chapter 22 says, When they heard the Hebrew language, their ears were open to listening. And Paul does a master craftsman job of keeping them engaged in his testimony as he shares his Jewish Ivy League training. He shares and he name drops several men, including Gamaliel, the high priest, Ananias, they're in. He talks about his zeal against Christians. They're still in. And he's hoping to keep them engaged throughout his testimony. But notice what happens in verse 22 of chapter 22 when their eardrums stop beating. One word. The word Gentiles. Before we get into the reason why that word stopped their ears, I, I do think it's important to pay attention to what word or words could I say this morning that might cause you to stop listening. Some examples. Democrat. Donald Trump. Addict. Adulterer. Used car salesman. Unitarian, evolutionist, ex-husband. Why might we stop listening to those words? 
Because there's something about those words that asks us to make a decision on our level of engagement. And what's easy about selective hearing is if we stop our ears, we believe we don't have to engage. And for the Jews of the day, hearing the word Gentile coming off of not just Paul's lips, but the Lord's lips meant having to engage on some level. And for some of us here, hearing the name Jesus may even shut down your ears. I don't want to engage. La, 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 la. Pay attention to your selective hearing because it might point you to a person or a people or a place that the Lord is calling you to engage with, including His own Son, Jesus. Who or what name are you shutting your ears to hear? The second sign of spiritual blindness or gospel macular degeneration is what I'll call, it's quirky, retinal rightness. It was late. It was late. I came up with that. Retinal rightness. Let me explain. So the retina is the back place in the back of the eye that's sensitive to light and serves to transmit the light image from the eye to the brain where the image is housed and made sense of. So what is retinal rightness? Retinal rightness is looking at the world to determine which people we deem to be acceptable by how closely they align with us and our views and our preferences and our way of life. The closer they align with us, the more we allow them to take space in our brain and our heart and our life. The less they align with us, the more we either distance ourselves from them, or if we can't do that, we'll eliminate them from our lives at whatever the cost. In this passage, we see retinal rightness in Paul's persecution of the way. The way is a derogatory, almost sarcastic code name that the Jewish audience would use to describe Jesus' followers. And verse 4 says, Paul persecuted them to the death. He would stop at nothing to get these people from the way out of his sight. After all, they were following someone who wasn't right in the head. Jesus. A human being who claimed to be God. Not right. Jesus. A Jew by birth who was eating and drinking with unclean and ungodly non-Jews. Not right. Jesus, who claimed to know the Father personally and who actually had the audacity to say, no one can see the Father unless they come through Him first. Not right. At the heart of most marital conflict, at the heart of most church splits, at the heart of most Family feuds is retinal rightness. If someone doesn't see things my way, then I don't want to see them. We will either stay away from them, but better yet, if I get them to stay away from me. Even to the point of death, like we see proclaimed by the Jews when they say, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And this retinal rightness condition often gets passed down from generation 
to generation to generation. Which is really sobering as a father of three young boys. A few nights ago, one of my sons and I were sitting watching our after-dinner dessert, the game show Wheel of Fortune. And as Pat introduced each of the three contestants, one of the male contestants proudly stated, my husband and I have been married for three years. I saw my son look to me inquisitively and ask, husband? I didn't think my response had any trace of retinal rightness as I stated calmly and carefully to him, you know what, son, there are some people who don't believe what God says about marriage, that he created it to be for a man and a woman. But then I noticed something in my own heart as I was watching the show. I noticed I was very much rooting against this contestant. When he spun a loser turn, my retinal rightness rejoiced. I saw the ugliness of my own heart, wanting to cast this man out of my field of vision, not only because of what he did, but because of who he was. It wasn't right in my own eyes. And then the ugliness of my heart was multiplied as this man spun a bankrupt and watched $6,000 fall out of his hands. I heard my son quietly rejoice with a yes. I didn't need to ask why he was cheering. I knew. His cheering was pointing me back to my spiritually blind self. And my retinal rightness. The third sign of spiritual blindness is what I'll call neighbor nearsightedness. And you can probably deduce from the name what I'm meaning, but I'll, I'll try to explain it. Prior to Paul's conversion, Paul understood the word neighbor to be those who shared his same language. And those who saw things rightly. And in the command to keep the whole law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, Paul and his fellow spiritually blind friends and brothers believed neighbor was anyone whom they could touch. And guess what about Gentiles? No touchy, they were unclean. Only his neighbors, whom the law allowed him to touch, were really in the category of showing love. Anyone else would contaminate you. When it came to worship practices, they were indeed following the law. But they took this law so much further than what it was intended to do. And they saw that their purpose as Jews in the world was to take care of each other, rather than being a light and a blessing to all the nations. Neighbor nearsightedness is still a condition found in the church today. We love those we like. 
we congregate with those who are the same as us. We can see our mission in the church as an inward mission to take care of our own while the rest of the world remains in the dark. To the Jews of the day, unless the Gentiles were circumcised and cleaned up their act, they weren't allowed in. They're not a neighbor. A friend I was talking with this week confessed to me how prevalent this neighbor nearsightedness runs through his veins. He talked about how much time and energy he devotes to his little kingdom, his little fiefdom of his family, his hobbies, and his work, all the while becoming less and less aware of Christ's kingdom work here on earth. Neighbor nearsightedness, it misrepresents the Lord's prayer. As we live lives that say, my kingdom come. My will be done on earth. I don't care about heaven. Have mercy on us, O God. And praise be to God. He did and He does have mercy on me and on us and on Paul. We see through Paul's conversion experience him saying, but now I see. The only cure for selective hearing, for retinal rightness, for neighbor nearsightedness is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. As Paul was selectively listening to his marching orders from his religious authority, he was armed with retinal rightness on his way to Damascus to eliminate from his sight anyone who dared challenge the rightness of those who kept the law. And at the brightest time of the day, a light brighter than the sun knocked him flat on his face. And a voice broke through his selective hearing to say, Saul, Saul, that's his spiritually blind name. Why are you persecuting me? Paul asks for ID. And his retinal rightness is shattered as he hears the name, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Suddenly, the people that he was zealous to kill for following this Jesus were now the very people who were actually right. To go after them to the death meant going after God himself. Paul's rightness of sight was actually wrong. His selective hearing of how and who to follow was wrong. Like the blind Ryan waking up to the sound of the phone, Paul was waking up to the reality that all of his life he had been living inside a mistake. Look with me at the vision language throughout Paul's conversion experience. The people around Paul in chapter 22.9 saw the light but did not understand or literally they did not hear with understanding. But Paul did. Verse 11 says that Paul was so struck by the brightness of the light that it was basically all he could see. It's almost like one of these stage lights. If I stare at them for any length of time and I look at you, I'm only going to see them. And Ananias, a respected and faithful man to the Jewish community, had also seen the light. And it's Ananias who says to Paul both literally and metaphorically, Receive your sight. 
So what does this new vision look like to Paul? What does coming out of spiritual blindness and into the light mean? And I believe the summary to this entire passage is found in verse 14. And it's what Paul wants his Jewish brothers and fathers so desperately to see and to understand. And what God wants us here sitting in Howard, Wisconsin in 2017 to see and understand. And it's this. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one. And to hear a voice from his mouth. To know his will. To see his righteous one. And to hear his voice. First, to know his will. What does knowing God's will mean? Unfortunately, that expression, God's will, has come to be kind of downgraded to like, who should I marry? Or what job should I take? Or what's God's will on where I should live or what house I should buy? All of those things are very important. God is, he cares about those details. He does. But in scripture, when it talks about God's will, that's not what it's talking about. Translated more fittingly, God's will means God's desire. What is the very thing that God wants more than anything else and will stop at no end to make sure it happens? What is that? What does he want? What is his will? What does he desire? We see it answered in a passage like 1 Timothy 2.4 where Paul says, in answer to the question, what is God's desire? Paul says, God wills or desires or wants or wishes that all peoples will be saved. To know God's will means to know that included in all peoples are not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Not only middle-class Caucasian, Green Bay natives, but refugees from Somalia or Laos. Not only those raised in the church, but those who have never stepped foot in a church. There is no people group outside of God's will to be rescued. He will stop at nothing to go after all peoples to see his face and to hear his voice including the accomplice to murder, Paul himself. Gentiles and Jews. Felons and females. The wealthy and those on welfare. The addict, the autistic, the game show host, and the game show contestant. Young, old, slave, free. His will and he will stop at nothing until all peoples are saved. The Lord tells Paul, even after Paul attempts to convince him, you know what, I, I might be on the in with these Jews. I have been a really bad guy and I have, they know that I mean business when it comes to Judaism. So Paul tries to talk the Lord into him staying in Jerusalem. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Because he knows that this radical message of God's desire being for all peoples will infuriate the spiritually blind. Because they believe it's God's will that only the retinal right, the Jews, the keepers of the law, can and will be saved. 
So Paul is called to know his will, to know God's desire. He's secondly called to see the righteous one. Note the singular. Righteous uno. Paul is reminded in his commission to do the will or desire of God that there is only one righteous. There is only one who had retinal rightness. And it's not Paul and his fellow law keepers. It's the creator of the law who became the only one who could keep the law. When Paul's vision is finally restored in the temple, verse 17 says that he falls into a wildly ecstatic vision or a trance where he not only hears Jesus' voice, but sees him, the righteous one. Paul sees the perfect, righteous Son of God, Jesus, in all of his glory. And Paul then sees his own gory sinfulness. Today, may he open our eyes to see Jesus' rightness as the only rightness that could ever be found in a human being. The only righteousness Paul or any of us can claim is found in the rightness of Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus can clothe each one of us if we, by faith, put our gory sinfulness onto Him on the cross. The punishment that we deserve for our selective hearing, our retinal rightness, our neighbor nearsightedness. What an incredible exchange. In verse 16, Paul hears the call to make the great exchange. In verse 16, why why did Paul need this command to get up? It seems like he just got this call. He's like, get up, get up, get up. I'm wondering why he needed to hear get up. And I'm wondering if it had to do with him seeing the weight of his sin. Seeing how bad he truly was. But look how long God wants to keep him there. He says through Ananias, get up. Get up. Wash away your sins by calling upon the righteous one's name. The great exchange is the call for all of us here to call upon the righteous one by saying, take our blindness and give us sight. Take our sin and make us right. Take our broken and messed up days and shine your light of undeserved grace. To know his will. To see his righteous one and to hear his voice. So what's his voice saying to Paul in verses 18 and 21? Go. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations doing the same thing that was done to you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go. Go with new eyes to declare to the rest of the world groping around in the darkness, there is a cure. Follow Jesus. And speaking his name, it will ruffle feathers and cause people to say, away with that man, he should not be allowed to live. But hearing the Lord's voice means hearing his voice above 
all of the voices in the world, just like we began this service. You can have all the world, but give me Jesus. We, friends, are here on this earth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are here on this earth, not as a holy huddle of nearsighted, like-minded people. We are here on this earth to be salt and light to a darkened world around us. Our mission is to be on mission to the faraway reaches of the Gentiles, the pagans, the spiritually blind. That's our mission. That's hearing His voice to go. Fanny Crosby is a composer of over 9,000 hymns, many of which we sing here at Jacob's Well. Blessed assurance, to God be the glory. We're going to close our service with one of her hymns, Facing a Task Unfinished. Fanny spent all but the first six months of her life blind. Although she physically could not see a thing in front of her, her hymns are filled with rich and sweet delight in the glory and vision of God. In one hymn she writes, Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let me view His constant smile. Then throughout my pilgrim journey, light will cheer me all the while. Once a minister approached her, attempting to empathize with her plight as a blind woman. And he said to her, I think it's just such a pity that the master didn't give you sight when he gave you all of these amazing gifts that you have. And she responded with words that I think echo Paul's call and Paul's story. She said to him, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition... It would have been that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I have the condition of gospel macular degeneration, that I forget my call and my mission, that I forget your desire and your will, that I even try to see me as the righteous one. But Father, thank you for your word, which clears our eyes and shines light on our dark places. Father, I acknowledge that there are people here today that are blind and groping around living inside the mistake. Father, I pray that your spirit and your grace would open their eyes and unstop their ears to hear that Jesus is the righteous one and he saves his people from death. And I pray for those of us who do believe. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to see where we have forgotten or become foggy in our thinking about why we're here. Keep us from becoming a holy huddle 
and get us out in the world sharing, proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done for us unashamedly. Move in us, work in us through the perfection, the light, and the hope, and the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.